Good morning and happy new year. Welcome to the first Money Talk Extra of 2019. This morning, I'm going to look at some of the financial considerations in planning for a wedding. Jimmy Lamb meets a listener who's a model to hear about her financial challenges. In our investment segment, I talk to a fund manager about what could be some of the investment surprises of 2019. We love to hear from you, so please do keep all your messages, questions and comments coming, either by posting on our Facebook page, Money Talk Extra on RTHK Radio 3, or emailing moneytalk at rthk.hk. 2019 may be the year when you start planning for one of the happiest days of your life, your wedding. However, one of the biggest causes of stress in the lead-up to a wedding can be budgeting. According to the Hong Kong Investor Education Centre, a significant number of couples in Hong Kong failed to budget thoroughly for their wedding, while almost 60% overspent on their big day. So how can you avoid some of the common pitfalls that befall engaged couples who are planning a wedding? To tell us, I'm joined now by Jill Tan, Head of Communications and Resources at the Investor Education Centre. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Peter. In Hong Kong, how much do people spend on average on their big day? According to our survey re- findings, we realise that um, couples actually look to their parents for support, financial support. About 22% actually get support from their parents and mm. about 5% take out financial bank loans and about 3% actually take out a credit line. So this is actually quite a challenge for them. And because mm. it takes a while to actually accumulate that amount of money, we also understand that majority of the couples actually take about one to three years to save up for it. And a smaller percentage, um, about 14%, say that they need more than five years. Now, it sounds like, um, according to your survey, wedding hangovers are quite common because a majority of couples overspend on their wedding. Yes, indeed. I think it's not unusual to find that most couples suffer from wedding hangovers because it's very um, all common to want to have that perfect wedding and, you know, at all costs as well. So when you go out to start budgeting and planning for the wedding, you know, you start with a long list. So mm. what we have at the Chin family is um, a tool, a wedding budgeting spreadsheet that actually breaks it down into various line items, all the way down to the licey packets that you need to give out to your groomsmen and your bridesmaid to, you know, the big ticket items like the wedding banquet. So this is actually a very good checklist, which allows you to see exactly how much you're spending and manage the items appropriately. And how much do they tend to overspend by? Oh, I think it varies from a bit, but about 60% claim that they had overspent on their budgets. So quite a lot. And what areas in particular? Are there certain areas in their wedding that they tend to just not adequately budget for? Well, for a start, we know that the big ticket items are the banquets, the jewelry and rings and honeymoon and the photography. So I think looking at that, you know, it's easy to see how you can really cut it down to, you know, cut down the cost of some of these items. So have you got some tips then for people who are thinking about getting married in terms of how they can keep their wedding costs within budget? Well, we would definitely recommend couples to actually start the planning early because the earlier you start, then the you know, more time you have to actually compare codes mm. and you can actually look for a wedding package. So instead of leaving it to the very last minute when you're under a lot of stress and you have to turn to wedding planner, which again is also, you know, an additional cost. So starting early helps and, you know, you can actually check around and compare costs and talk to the people around you who've actually mm. gone through the experience because they might have some tips. And then by coming up with a detailed 
budget, you know, you are able to really pinpoint the areas where you can make um, some adjustments. So, for instance, you know, um, thinking about whether you should be postponing your honeymoon to a later point in time. Mm. I think most um, for traditional Chinese families also, you know, the wedding is not only for the couple, but it's also for the extended family. So it's not unusual, you know, for the families to want to get involved and invite their relatives and friends. So I think that, you know, having that upfront conversations with the families jointly or maybe individually, it also helps because you set the expectations and you mm. share with them what you can actually afford. And then they can, you know, I, I, I think that they can also consider if they would like to chip in or maybe make some adjustments accordingly. Now, there's a couple of areas in particular. Mm -hmm. First of all, the photographer. We want to have good memories from our wedding, don't we? So the temptation is to maybe spend quite a bit of money on getting a good photographer, mm -hmm. having lots of photos. What do you recommend there? I think there are a lot of um, options you know, for wedding photos because a lot of couples these days prefer to actually go overseas for that for wedding photography and they do that in advance. So it could come up to quite a lot or you could actually pick a local location where you could manage the costs wisely. And what about the wedding dress? That's another big expense, yes. isn't it? I think there's always a consideration, you know, whether you want to keep that dress or whether you want to rent it. So uh, I think oftentimes we would also encourage the bride to consider, you know, what they really need. Hmm. Um, you know, as in most wedding banquets or so, it's not unusual for the couples to change their outfits quite a few times. So I think by actually cutting down the number of, um, you know, cost changes, you know, that could help you save quite a bit. And do you need a wedding planner? I think it depends on the individual. So for most people who want to take the stress out of the planning process, so they might look to a wedding planner. And um, there, at times, it might also help you to cut down or manage the costs. So uh, I think for people who are totally clueless, you know, it might not be a bad thing after all, because you can actually share your budget with a bad wedding planner, and he or she could work around, you know, your needs. Now, you mentioned a lot of couples overspend. What are the consequences of overspending? What does it mean for after the big day? I think the wedding is the first step of life together as a couple. So a lot of times, you know, it will also impact the long-term goals of the family. For instance, we also understand from our survey findings that um, these wedding couples have long-term financial goals. For instance, like, you know, within the next five years, about 71% of the surveyed newlyweds indicated that they would like to save to raise children, to purchase a property or save for a rainy day. So obviously, if you start on the wrong foot, then the less you have to start your home. So it's important, I think, for wedding couples not just to talk about the wedding, but talk about their financial life together, because they tend not to do that, do you, before, before you've actually got married, so that you know what each other's expectations are about spending and saving and investment. I think it's very important for couples to actually have upfront conversations prior to the wedding, because many people have different expectations, and to understand the other party's point of view. For instance, at the start, you know, um, one might want to put more emphasis or focus on having a beautiful and uh, unforgettable wedding. But then again, you know, the other party might think otherwise and want to save up for the future. So having that frank conversation definitely puts you on the right foot. Jill, thank you very much indeed and Happy New Year. Thank you. That was Jill Tan of the Hong Kong Investor Education Centre. According to estimates, there are over 10,000 active models in the world. And their financial well-being varies to a large degree, depending upon the number and nature of their job opportunities. 
Our listener April Lai is a model, and she told Jimmy Lamb about her financial objectives for this year. Good morning, April.、Uh, so, how long have you been a model? Hi. Good morning. I have been modeling for seven years. So seven years, and how did you get started in、mm. the beginning?、Um, actually, one of my friends was a model agent. She invited me to a pre-net shooting casting, which shoots with a famous singer,、uh, Lee Hong Won. Luckily, I was chosen to be the model. So after that, many model agencies tried to reach me as their model. So that's how I started my modeling. So it's. The one th- one you started, then、mm. you start to have more referrals. And、mm. what does a model actually do?、Mm. Basically,、uh, pre-ad shooting, TVC shooting, TV shows, and some events models, and currently KOL. Right. And、mm. do you guys work for a particular modeling company, or are you more like a freelancer that you work for a different、uh, boss? Um, maybe ten years ago, many models chose to be a contracted model, but nowadays clients are very easily to look for model on the internet, and they some of them they don't want to pay agency fee,、right. and even many model agencies also use freelance models as well. So I guess more models would like to be a freelancer right now. Right, and as you mentioned, you can get more income、um, mm. without the agency, without the intermediary.、Uh, but do you think modeling is an industry that can produce stable income?、Mm. Um, for me, the first year wasn't stable, but once you get more networks and you get to know more people, you will have some return clients. Then your income could be more stable. And you can get more different jobs and references. Uh, just uh, I always think jobs never come by themselves, unless you attend different castings and be a self-disciplined person. In this field, too many pretty girls, right? Right. <laughs> so、uh, clients only choose models who have good reputation and good behavior. So the income is really depends on our attitude. Right and,、mm. and right now, as you just mentioned, you do a lot of other jobs, right? So, what, what do you do other jobs other than modeling? Ah,、uh, no. <laughs> no, but but that、uh, the the TV、uh, like commercials, you it's part of the it's modeling, part of modeling, right? Yeah, okay, you consider. Okay, I, I that okay, I get、mm. it. Then, how would you describe your current、uh, financial situation? Hmm. Uh, my、uh, financial situation is pretty quite stable. Especially, I have a promotion job every weekend. So, and I have been working for a brand ambassador for five years already. So, it's pretty stable. But do you think there is a age limit? As you mentioned, many pretty girls to <laughs> go to.、Um, like, is there age limit when you need to switch to another job? Say, you when you reach a certain age. Um, actually, I think it depends on what type of model you want to be. If you want to take the sexy road, there must be an age limit, right? right? But if you want to become an actor or a commercial model, you can still get jobs in different ages. But of course, I think younger models have more choices. Right,、mm-hmm. um, and f- more about yourself. Like, do you have like a plan of how your career will, will evolve over time? 
um, what, what's your plan? Mm. Um, I will still try my best and be who I am. Actually, for my first two years, many agencies asked me to do some sexy jobs, which need to wear skimpy clothes to take some sexy photos. Even though the payment was quite good, but I still rejected it uh, because I wanted to stay who I am and have a healthy image so I can get more healthy jobs in the future. Right, so reputation mm. is choosing the right jobs is very Image, important. Yeah. <laughs> and what have been your biggest challenge or what, what mm. difficulties do you face in terms of your career and also personal finance at the moment? I think self-discipline and good attitude could be a challenge. Being a model, we don't have a routine working hours. We may need to wake up at 5 a.m. for shooting being on time and having a good uh, preparation is a must. Maybe some people think being an actress of Police Magazine is very easy, but and that's what you've been doing, right? <laughs> yes, that's what I have been doing. I've been working for Police Magazine for five years already. But uh, actually, every night before shooting, I spent two to three hours to read the script and study my role so I could act better in front of the camera. It could be some challenges for some new young models. And for the financial challenges, I believe for some new models have challenges on making reasonable income as we don't have the basic salaries. But if for the models who can stay in these industries, for many years, I believe they could make some good income to support their li living, like me. And I'm not saying I'm really rich, but I don't think I have any financial difficulties for now. <laughs> okay, you mm. don't have any financial difficulties for now, but um, do you have any um, objectives that you would like to achieve um, in the future? Is <clears> it? <throat> mm. Does it mean uh, I, something I really want to have? Yes, maybe a certain amount of money or certain role that you would like to get into. Um, not well. Actually, I have done so many yes, roles <laughs> already, so not really. But if you say like some uh, financial objective, I would say. Um, I want to purchase one more flat, maybe. Oh, for but not for self-use for rental. Right? No, oh, no, oh, no. Oh. Because uh, I already have one, but maybe buy one more for retirement plan or something. Oh, nice. I don't know. You just heard there from our listener April talking about some of her financial goals. Jimmy Lam went to speak to a former model company owner, Ann Chen, to get some advice. Uh, morning, Ann. So I know you have worked with uh, many models before. Uh, so what would you suggest for April in order to achieve her financial goals? Um, April is a very experienced model, has been a model for over 10 years already. She says she already has a flat she bought before and looking for another one for retirement. To be fair, between now and her retirement is a very long time as she is young. So she has a lot of time before she retires to buy another flat. Right, and how important do you think it's uh, for April and other models in general to plan for their retirement at an early stage while they're still young? 
Um, having the plan early is very important and very good for models like April. I'm not a property agent or an expert, so I cannot comment when it is good time to buy another flat in April's case. It is down to affordability as well. But I do agree, models should think about what to do when they get older. That is the time when they no longer compete with other young girls on appearance, but they are more experienced and have more wisdom than the young. Personally, I know some of my close friends who used to be models tap into other related industries like designing or marketing. All these require good sense of beauty judgments. It's just like how to showcase a product in the best way. So they can use the skills in another industry, right? And、um, to diversify the skill sets to open more doors for opportunities, right? Yes, I think models should try to come up with more ideas for clients. Maybe, for example, doing some crossovers with different actors or celebrities, or mix and match some functions like combining a press conference with modeling exhibitions or other some, something similar. The main message is not to be just a model, but a creative producer. So clients see the value in you and remember you as a unique asset to them. Right, and apart from the point that you mentioned, expanding the the job scope,、um, how do you see personal investment fit into a model's、uh, financial plan? That's what I always tell the girls to do: not just to work hard as a model, but also work hard as a person. I mean, to use the money they earn smartly. I always remind myself to remember how bitter and difficult they feel in the job. So try to keep the money and don't overspend on some luxurious items, because they see expensive brands during their jobs. They are easily tempted to own them. That was former model company owner An Chen. The last couple of years have been full of surprises for investors. Very few people predicted the presidency of Donald Trump, Brexit, the rise and fall of Bitcoin, or the start of a trade war between the world's two largest economies. While some investors did correctly anticipate the market rally of 2017, few foresaw the swoon in 2018 that saw the Hang Seng Index drop 22% from its January high into a bear market, and the spectacular collapse of some of the former market darlings in the tech sector. Not a single analyst had a sell recommendation on Tencent at the beginning of last year. However, it subsequently went on to tumble 47% during 2018. Likewise, few predicted Apple rising to become a trillion-dollar company and then giving up all of its gains for the year. So, what could come out of left field in 2019 in the world of finance, economics, and politics that could shock investors? I went to see Tariq Denison, portfolio manager at GFM Asset Management, and asked him to gaze into his crystal ball. Good morning, Tariq. Good morning, Peter. So there's a few things out there that are already on the horizon, but are there any events that maybe people are just not realising the severity of that could become a bit of a shock next year? Well, absolutely. One thing about markets is that they do tend to surprise us. If we already knew what to expect, there wouldn't be any volatility in the markets. So、uh, I would actually start by talking about the surprises in the past and the present that many people don't know about. If you want to look at what were the surprises in 2018 that people didn't know, the best performing markets were Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. And I'd be surprised how many people listening to, the, to this actually knew that. Now, in terms of upcoming surprises, I would look at, for example,、uh, the exploding levels of debt in China and whether those are sustainable or whether you're going to see 
deleveraging or some kind of credit crisis uh, in China. I would also look for surprises in uh, some assets that have been out of favor for a while to suddenly surprise us with outperformance. Uh, for example, Hong Kong listed and Russia listed stocks and stocks in the pharmaceutical and telecom sector, for example. So on the debt situation in China, I mean, this is something that's been on the radar for a while. Various people have been predicting that this is going to cause a big crisis and a big financial upheaval in China. So far, that hasn't really happened, has it? China has managed to get through with these very, very high levels of debt, a bit like uh, Japan has. Mm -hmm. But do you think that, that could change next year and this could really become the next crisis? Well, my view is that it's going to be a lot less dramatic than the uh, gloom and doomers would hope or that a lot of us would fear. I mean, I think China has a lot of things under control. And I think a Japan-style scenario where you have a lot of slow and painful deleveraging and a lot of slower growth or pain spread out in different areas is far more likely. Uh, I mean, that's just overall. I'm not a boom, doom, and gloomer. Now, that said, that means that I am very cautious about avoiding Chinese property developers or any sectors of the Chinese economy that have a lot of debt. That's just purely from an investment point of view. And I think that's Investing. And what about the economy in China? People, the majority of analysts and economists have been predicting a slowdown. Are they underestimating possibly just how much the Chinese economy could slow down? Could that be a surprise? It could be a surprise, but I actually think there's a lot of room for growth in China that is still relatively healthy. And the other thing is that the that growth there could look different than what we're used to. Now, when we talk about 6% growth in China, that's slow for them, but it's great for any, anyone else. If China really went down to 5 or 6%, is that really so terrible? Um, now, also in terms of what types of growth, I think China is going to continue to see developments in artificial intelligence, in other forms of productivity technology that will move it up the value chain. And it may mean some of the areas where we've traditionally seen China strong, low-end manufacturing, may move to other countries like Vietnam. That's what we've already expected so far. And I think the parts that are going to surprise us are going to be the little ones that appear on page six, not the big ones that appear on page one. So no major surprises then on the mainland. But what about here in Hong Kong? Could there be some surprises here? Oh, of course. Well, even on the mainland, I'm not saying that there won't be surprises. I'm just admitting fully honestly that I don't know what they're going to be. Um, I think the biggest thing in Hong Kong, you were mentioning earlier that no one had expected Tencent would suddenly correct. Well, I can tell you I did not short Tencent stock, but I certainly didn't own it. And that was just purely from a point of view of what was sensible um, what was sensible at any point in time. Now, in terms of what would be, uh, what would be a surprise, surprise here in Hong Kong, Again, if I knew what it would be, I'd be guessing it, but I, I, don't like to, I don't like to make forecasts. What I do believe, though, is I do believe Hong Kong-listed companies or Hong Kong-based companies, many of them can outperform their developed market counterparts just purely based on valuation. And you've mentioned the tech stocks there, like Tencent. We've seen in recent months quite a big correction in tech stocks, also in the U.S. now as well. Apple has given up its gains for the year. It became a trillion-dollar company in 2018 and then lost it again uh, within a couple of months. Do you think the party's over for tech stocks? Well, it's not that the party's over. I think that they're just coming back to earth. I mean, if you look even at the price of Amazon recently, Amazon could fall another 30%, and it would still look expensive. Um, I just posted on Facebook recently that Facebook uh, now looks like a value stock. And whoever would have thought a few years ago that any of us would have said that? I don't think that's an upset. I don't think that's a, you know, that's a pain or a slump. It's just the idea of prices moving back to rational levels. And that's what we see at, at different points in cycles. You'll be surprised if you get your Facebook account closed for saying that. Oh. <laughs>
Now, what about on the political front? We had a few political shocks, didn't we, over the last couple of years? We've had Brexit. Um, we've had the election of President Trump. Some of these are still rumbling on. Brexit, obviously, is going to come to a big uh, climax fairly soon. Very hard to predict, isn't it, political shocks? But anything that potentially worries you on the horizon? Well, that's what makes political shocks political shocks. I mean, uh, I tend to follow emerging markets a lot. Uh, obviously, the two that I think have been the biggest worries this year have been Turkey and Argentina. Um, again, some of these came out of the blue. I don't think any, anyone expected anything to erupt in Egypt before it did. Everyone thought things, things were so stable there. Uh, now, it depends when you're talking about changes in politics, or is it going to come in the developed world? Is it going to come in a part of the world that, uh, that no one's watching? Um, I think there is going to be a lot of eyes on the U.S. in 2020. That's going to be, obviously, a year, a year after 2019. Um, I don't think, on the other hand, the U.K. is going to be quite as relevant what happens there as, uh, as many may have thought two years ago when the uh, Brexit referendum was uh, announced. And what about here in Hong Kong? I mean, politics is normally a little bit boring here in Hong Kong, isn't it? But it's been heating up recently because there'd be some shocks there. Maybe Hong Kong gets more dragged into the, the trade war, as Donald Trump has been threatening. Well, I don't really talk about Hong Kong politics because I often say uh, Hong Kong is the iPhone of political systems. You can't uh, install anything outside the App Store, but things work pretty well. Um, now, in terms of impact of trade, well, Hong Kong is a trading city. Uh, I wrote before the election of Donald Trump that I thought Hong Kong would be the most harmed by uh, a trade war or the election of Donald Trump. And it so happened that the Hang Seng outperformed the S&P the year, the year after Trump's election. So I could be wrong, I could be wrong about things like that. Uh, now, moving forward, okay, what else, uh, what else does Hong Kong have? I think Hong Kong is bigger abilities having to do with its competitiveness, with its position in Asia, and whether more and more countries are going to be trading directly with Shanghai and Xiamen rather than having to use a port of uh, uh, using Hong Kong's port. Hong Kong has a real identity question of what its place in the Asian economy, in the regional economy, is going to be going forward. And that's not a new surprise for 2019. And we're going to see a lot of debate, presumably, about the Greater Bay Area and Hong Kong's place in, in that as well. Well, I don't know if that's so much a debate. I think, actually, the Greater Bay Area is one of the greater things coming for Hong Kong, because this is an area with an economy, uh, with a population larger than California, an economy roughly the size of California, and a growth rate probably twice as fast as that of California. So it's a, it's a really well-integrated and interesting place, and China gets the arbitrage of one country and two systems. We get you know, an English-based basic law system here in Hong Kong when we want to use that and a different currency, and we have the mainland system up north of the border when we want to use that. I've often said uh, the U.S. might wish that we had a San Francisco SAR or a New York SAR to be able to have that kind of safety valve and that kind of arbitrage between two systems. And finally, you can't talk about Hong Kong without talking about property. Any potential shocks that you see there? Well, um, I've actually been relatively muted on Hong Kong property simply because I believe a lot of safety valves are there in place. The fact that down payment requirements are already so high and there are so many stops the HKMA could remove if it ever needed to um, to calm a uh, crash in the property market. I don't necessarily think Hong Kong property prices are going to crash, but I don't think that we're going to see the... Um, the rates of appreciation over and above the rates of uh, uh, wage increases as we've seen in the past few years. That was Tariq Dennison of GFM Asset Management. That's it for this week. Throughout 2019, we plan to give you advice on planning your finances better, dealing with the financial consequences of lifestyle changes, and help you to become a smarter investor and entrepreneur. 
So please do join Jimmy Lamb and me every Saturday morning from 8.30. In the meantime, from me, Peter Lewis, have a great week. 